Good to see you this morning. I hope you're doing well. We're going to be in John 15, verse 18, as we continue in the Gospel of John. So if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to John 15, verse 18, and let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are our dad, you're our heavenly father, that you're present with us, that you have a plan for our lives. And we ask that you would bless this time in your word, that you would send your spirit to lead us and guide us in truth, that we would hear you speak through the pages of scripture. So we invite you, Holy Spirit. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's times where the cause is so great that it's worth suffering. Would you agree? There's certain opportunities that come to us where we say, this is worth suffering. We look at soldiers who make the sacrifice over and over and over again for our freedom, and some even laying down their lives for our country. What an amazing sacrifice for an amazing cause. See, police officers in our community every day go off to work, not wondering if they're going to come home safely. Why? Because they see the cause of keeping us safe as being worthwhile. Athletes work so hard, don't they? They would say to us, man, this is worth the sacrifice. This is worth the suffering for this cause of being the champion. Students work hard. They work and they work and work and work and work to get those decrees and diplomas. Us as parents feel that burden, don't we? Where we go, there's sacrifice as a parent, but the cause is worth it. My children are worth it. Jesus is moments from his crucifixion. He's preparing his disciples for his departure as well as a life of ministry. And he's instructing them that there's going to be suffering, that there is going to be persecution. But the persecution is also tied to the witness. As they're persecuted, they have the opportunity to be a witness for Jesus Christ. I found this article to be interesting. This was from USA Today from June 18th, just this week. The title was, Global Christian Persecution is Worsening While American Churches Slumber. This is a secular news organization writing about global persecution of believers and their estimate of the American church that we're asleep, that we're sleeping while the church is being persecuted. The article went on to describe on May 18th in Nigeria, a church was having choir practice. Some came in and abducted 17 Christians. Can you imagine we're gathered together and those that hate Christians come inside of the church building and begin to kidnap believers? The article says that there were just under 4,000 believers in Nigeria that were killed in the last year. In China, the persecution has been taking place and the Chinese government is concerned, and again I quote the article, that there's more Christians in the church than there are those in the Communist Party. That's amazing of God's goodness and God's power. As the church has been persecuted in China, God is blessed and caused it to grow. So the Chinese government is now cracking down on the church even harder with facial recognition, social scoring, and imprisonment. This is how the article ends. It says, like most of the culture, the American church is more concerned about college entrance scandals and the Game of Thrones than persecution. 
States, USA Today, saying we're more concerned about what's going on on our screens than we are what's happening with the persecution in the world around us. If there's one thing that I could get to stick in your head this morning is that the cause is worth it. The cause of Christ is worth it in order if there's persecution and there's suffering in our lives. Jesus told us that our attitude towards persecution should be one that we're blessed if we're persecuted because great is our reward in heaven. That we're in the company of those who've gone before us, prophets who have suffered. We would oftentimes think that the fruitful life would lead to the easy life. If you remember back to last week of John 15, that as we abide in Christ, he's the vine and we bear fruit. God wants us to, to bear much fruit. And we think, well, as my life starts to bear fruit, then it should be easy, right? As by God's grace, if my life becomes more godly, then my life should just then enter onto easy street or maybe normal street. I'll take normal street, right? But here, as we follow the text, as we follow the line of thinking here, Jesus says you're going to be fruitful and you're going to go through persecution. You're going to go through suffering and that suffering is going to lead for the opportunity to be a witness. So verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. This would be a jolt to the disciples' system. You're going to be hated as my disciple. And remember that the world hated me first. And as we follow Christ, there will be those that come against us because we're following Jesus' footsteps. And don't be surprised, they hated Christ first. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. It's a belief system, it's values, it's, it's ideology, it's everything that we thought and we marched according to before we received Christ as our Savior. But when Jesus got a hold of our lives, he called us out of that system. He called us out of the world unto himself. So we're being called out of something into a powerful, genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. But if we were of the world, if we continued in that stream, there would be no persecution. There would be no suffering. But if we choose to say, I'm not going to live according to these values that the world propagates, and I'm going to live according to the values of God's word, then there's going to be persecution. Then there's going to be suffering. As we look at our culture, even in the last 10 years, we can see that America is moving farther and farther away from the word of God. There would be a time in our country to live out the word of God, and it wouldn't necessarily be countercultural. There was a time in our country to say what God believes about sexuality, and that wouldn't be resisted inside of culture. But today, if you're going to believe the Bible, which I hope you do, Genesis to Revelation, I got to tell you, it doesn't go along with culture. And it starts right at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, where God says he created us in his image, male and female, didn't he? God's definition of sexuality, and I don't mean to offend you, 
But this is God's word. He says that sex is to be inside of the commitment of marriage between a husband and a wife. The largest sector of persecution that the church is experiencing comes on God's message of sexuality to the point where a lot of churches are backing down from what God teaches about sex. But last time I looked, this is his word. We got to stand by it. We don't get to make it up. God's word gets to define us. We don't get to define God's word. Do you know why John the Baptist was beheaded? Because he took a biblical stand on sex. Herod was living in sexual sin. John the Baptist called him out on it. John the Baptist was silenced by Herod. He cut his head off because of his teaching towards uh, sexuality. But please hear this. As Christians, we don't want to simply be known for what we stand against, but what we stand for and the love of God. Because if someone is in sexual sin, guess what? Jesus died for their sins. Jesus rose again. He says, come to me as you are. I'm ready to take your life, change it, and transform it. But please hear this. Believer, we are not of the world. We live in the world. God wants us to impact the world, be friends with sinners, but we're not of the world. God has called us to swim upstream, and there's that message that is given to the disciples, saying, guys, don't expect the world to like you. Don't expect for you to be able to live in this stream of the world. We look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. If you think of a master with his servants, if someone doesn't like the master, they're not going to like the servants. Jesus is reminding us that he's our master. We're his servant. So if they hated Christ, we will be hated as well. But there's an encouragement that's given here to us. It says, if they kept my word, they're going to keep your word as well. As followers of Jesus Christ, as we share the love of Christ, as we share the word of God, people are going to respond to the word. They're going to respond to the power of God's word. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. They're going to persecute you for my name's sake. Whenever we see the name of Christ in scriptures, it's speaking of who Jesus is his person, his character, his nature. So they're going to come against you because they don't like who Jesus is and Jesus is being represented in your life. And he says, this is the key in verse 21, because they do not know him who sent me. And as you might be experiencing some resistance in your life, because you're a Christian, remember the reason why that family member's coming against you is they don't know Jesus. They don't know the Father. The reason that secular company that you work for doesn't care about your views of Scripture or your views about who Jesus is is because they don't know the Father. The reason that educational system, that university, that high school teacher doesn't want you to share the things of Christ is because they don't know, know the Father. And sometimes we can get so upset at the person or the company or or the culture 
that doesn't know Jesus, but this just represents an opportunity. This just represents a spiritual need. So instead of getting mad at the person, go to the heart of the issue and begin to pray that they would come to know Christ as their Savior. Look for an opportunity to keep the main thing the main thing, and that's to be a testimony of Jesus Christ. Remember Saul was persecuting the church in the book of Acts. Killing Christians, arresting Christians. Why? Because he doesn't know the Father. I bet the early church was praying for Saul. God answered those prayers and called him by name. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He becomes radically saved. What if that boss, that, that professor, that family member, that neighbor came to know Christ as their Savior? One thing that's encouraging about someone who may be persecuting you for Christ is at least they're having a response to Jesus. Amen? Maybe the worst response to Jesus is, oh, I don't care. You believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. But when someone gets offended by Jesus, at least they've taken the time to think about Jesus. Jesus is getting all up in their personal space and, and they don't like it. So something's happening in their heart and their life And remember, it's because they don't know the Lord, and so we want to pray that they would come to know the Lord. Verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. They may have pleaded ignorance prior to this. Walvard and Zuck, in their commentary, put it this way, Before Jesus' coming, people might have pleaded ignorance as an excuse for sin, But now that the light has come, they willfully reject it, and they have no excuse. In verse 23, it says, He who hates me hates my father also. There would be those that were planning the death of Christ that would say, We love the father, but we hate Jesus. And so here Jesus says, You can't separate the father and the son. If you hate Jesus, you also hate the father. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin, but now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. They're accountable to the works of Jesus that they've seen. We're accountable to the works of Jesus revealed through the gospels. They see the works of Christ, and their conclusion was, well, we hate Christ and we hate the father. In verse 25, before this happened, that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. But this happened, that the word might be fulfilled. Jesus says, this isn't a surprise. This was written in the law that they would hate me without a cause. Jesus quotes Psalm 69, verse 4 here, where David writes about his own persecution. I want to read it to you. Because as you read this, you wouldn't necessarily think that this was a prophecy of Christ, but it absolutely is. David says, Save me, O God, from the waters that have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I've come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I'm weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail when I wait for my God. Ever felt that way? It's just, man, I'm really hurting here. Then he says, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. And that's what Jesus quotes here and says, this was written of me. So there's many more prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament than we would even realize. It is fascinating to me how there's such a hatred for Christ 
when Christ has done nothing wrong, he has committed so, no sin, no wickedness. And Jesus is so polarizing. I mean, talk about the Rockies, you're fine. You know, talk politics, you're pretty much fine for the most part. But wow, talk about Jesus, and it's going to get real in the conversation, isn't it? And why is Jesus such a, a threat to people? I mean, what was it in his life? Was it that he fed the 5,000? Was it that he healed the blind? That he casted out demons? Was it because he spoke truth? Is it because he gives grace? See, Jesus is the light of the world, so he's a threat to our darkness. And men love darkness in, instead of light. And that's why Christ is polarizing. And why, that's why that there can be that response to Christ to, to want to resist him. We go from the persecution to the witness. The, the persecution leads to the witness in verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The helper is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to send the, the Holy Spirit. Helper means advocate. It means intercessor, the one who comes alongside to help, leading us in the spirit of truth and is going to testify of Jesus. And I love the way the scriptures put this together. For the disciples, as they're persecuted, they also have the filling of the Holy Spirit, which enables them to be a witness in the midst of the persecution. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, And the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, so you shall be witnesses of me. The power of the Spirit equips us to be able to be witnesses. And I know sometimes for us, when we think about persecution for Christ's sake and suffering for Christ's sake, we go, man, I don't know if I have the strength to be able to endure the persecution. This humbles me. But yet we have to remember that God is going to be faithful to give the power of the Holy Spirit. As the church was persecuted, there came a tremendous witness. As the Spirit was poured out and the church was birthed in the book of Acts, they did the holy huddle and they all stayed together in Jerusalem, which we tend to do, don't we? We like to be with believers, such a blessing to be in fellowship. The people weren't leaving Jerusalem to go tell others about who Jesus was. Jesus had said, I want you to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the othermost parts of the earth, then Stephen is martyred. And as Stephen is martyred, then the church has to leave Jerusalem for safety reasons. And as they leave, they tell people about Jesus everywhere they go, and the gospel begins to spread. God used the persecution to lead to the witness. In the book of Acts, we see the faithfulness of the Spirit to allow believers to be the witness under tremendous pressure. And also we're able to look back on church history and see God's faithfulness to pour out his spirit in the midst of persecution to cause the church to rise. Believers did not buckle when their life was on the line to testify of Jesus Christ. It's either you die or you reject Christ. And believers said, I am going to be faithful to Jesus, and that was the power of the Spirit in their lives. This would be heavy for the disciples, but the encouragement was the help of the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to testify of Jesus. I got a question for you. 
How do you know that the Spirit of God is working in the midst of a church or in the midst of a group of believers or even a individual believer's life? It's when people are in love with Christ. It's when Christ is being magnified because the role of the Spirit is to testify of Jesus. So people don't necessarily leave talking about the Holy Spirit. They leave talking about Jesus. So when the gift of teaching is used, hopefully people are walking away talking about Jesus. When the gift of mercy is used, they're not amazed at the gift of mercy. They're amazed at the love of Jesus. So the Spirit of God, when it's moving, Jesus will be magnified. In verse 27, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So the Spirit's bearing witness of Jesus, and as the Spirit lives inside of you, you're going to bear witness of me because you've been with me from the beginning. What does it mean to be a witness? I think a lot of us desire to be a witness to those who don't know Christ as our Savior, to encourage believers, but we don't know how. We don't know what it is. To bear witness is to testify of what you've seen and you've heard. If you're called into a court case, you have to give testimony. You're going to be asked what you've seen and what you've heard. So the Spirit of God desires to fill us to where we can speak of and our lives can be an example of what we've experienced with Jesus. One of the things that God wants to use in your life is his testimony His story in your life. How did you come to know Christ as your Savior? What was your life like before you were saved? What changes has Christ made in your life? I'm far from perfect, but this is what Christ has done in my life. And to be able to share that with people that God brings in uh, to your life. I love hearing people's testimonies. I, I love hearing how people have come to know Christ as their Savior. Even as a believer, I'm so encouraged to hear other believers' stories of how they've come to know Jesus. What God gives us in the scripture is not how to witness, but who. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us to love people and to be able to share the gospel with them. The gospel very succinctly of John three sixteen. One of the things I love about Jesus in the gospels is he never loves two people the same way because they're individuals. And there isn't a method of how to be a witness. God doesn't give us a method because he wants us relying upon the Holy Spirit because people are different. You know that if you're a parent, right? Are all your kids the same? We've got four kids, same mom and dad, and they are completely different, right? So an easy mistake to make as a parent is like, well, this worked with this kid. Well, it's probably not going to work with the next kid. And they keep you guessing. And they keep you having to engage with them as a, an individual. How much more so in being a witness of, Holy Spirit, you know my neighbor. You know my family member. You know my coworker. You know what makes them tick. You want to declare your love to them. So would you show me how? How would you want me to reach out to them? What would you like me to be able uh, to say uh, to them? So the Spirit of God enables us to be a witness. We're going to look at the first four verses of chapter 16. These things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. He's preparing the disciples so they're not surprised when they go through persecution. And we should be prepared as well. 
that we wouldn't stumble because there's persecution for Christ's sake. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. To be put out of the synagogue would affect every area of their life. They'd be an outcast spiritually with their families, financially, saying you're going to be kicked out of the synagogue for my name's sake. And people will kill you, and when they kill you, they think they're doing God a service. Seeing Jesus to be blasphemous, and so trying to silence anyone who believes in Christ. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Reminding them, hey, the reason they're persecuting you is they need a relationship with the Father. They need a relationship with Jesus. But these things I've told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. You're going to remember I prepared you for this. The beginning was not the time to share it with you, but now that I'm departing, I need to prepare you for the persecution. So what's the application for us this morning of God's word? How do we apply this? The first is, we need to remember that there's Christians who are suffering all over the world. We need to understand that this is a huge reality for much of the world today. When they receive Christ as their Savior, the moment that they receive Christ, they know that their life could, could be on the line. To pray for believers, to see how God would lead you to be able to reach out to those. But remember the Christians who are suffering throughout the world. And then secondly, is don't live in fear. God doesn't want us living in fear. Maybe throughout this message, you've started to get fearful and go, well, what does this mean for me? What kind of persecution is going to come my way because I'm a follower of Christ? Unfortunately, what I'm hearing, what I see as being the narrative of the Church of America as a whole right now is one of fear. We're afraid because we see our culture changing and so we're going, man, I, I'm really afraid about that. If we're going to bed at night in a place of fear over what could be in our country down the road, that's not God's heart for us. God's heart for us is to see this as an opportunity, to see this as an opportunity to be able to reach out with the love of Jesus Christ. It may be, this is something I'm thinking through and wrestling through and praying through, is that we may actually be more concerned about losing our comforts as American Christians than actually really being concerned about the spiritual condition of our country. I'll be the first to raise my hand on this. It's way too easy for me to simply complain about what I see going on spiritually in our country and do nothing about it. I'm so concerned about this. I'm so concerned about this. And this is what's going wrong in our country. And bump, 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 bump. And I'm sharing that with my wife. And the kids are overhearing that. And getting together with Christian friends. And can you believe this? And did you hear this article? And then time goes by. And I still haven't told my neighbor about Jesus. I haven't actually been moved to prayer. I've just been complaining. And God would say, hey, it's time to stop complaining and it's time to do something. It's time to stop living in fear and to respond and say, Lord, you have a plan and you have a purpose for my life 
and you desire to use my life for your glory. I'll be honest, there's part of this message that scares me. I like being comfortable. Even when it comes down to the temperature of the room, I've become more and more picky about the temperature of the room. The offices upstairs, it seems that all of the air conditioning comes down my vent and my ceiling like this. So I actually bring a bigger coat to work in the summer than I do in the winter. And I whine about it. You know, like I whine about it to the rest of the staff. It's like, I'm so cold. Man, it's so cold in here. I have to bring my coat in the summertime and stinking air conditioning, right? And then at night at home, if I'm too hot in bed, Amber's got to hear about it, right? I'm going through menopause. I'm just so hot. Get these covers off me. I can't sleep. It's too hot, right? In order for me to be happy, I guess the room has to be 69.5 degrees. And then, then I can be happy. And let's be honest about our culture for just a minute. Like in the midst of the prosperity, and I'm not saying you don't have challenge in your life, because I know you do, and I know I do as well. But when it comes to physical prosperity, we have so much, don't we? We have such comfortable lives, and we get to control so much. We control the temperature in the car. We control the temperature in the room. We control what we eat. And we've got so many options. And it's so hard to get dressed in the morning. I got so many shirts to choose from, right? And and we're comfortable. And there's a part of our flesh that goes, oh, I I like being comfortable. And I don't want to risk that comfort. And if I speak of the name of Jesus, maybe I'm going to lose a relationship. Maybe it's going to affect my career. What if culture does continue to change and there's more and more opposition to the things of God? What if it costs me something? And I want you to hear this. I want you to hear it loud and clear. The cause is worth the suffering. The cause of Jesus is worth the suffering. He went to the cross. We sang it in worship. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the cross for me. I'm saved. I'm the child of God. I'm completely forgiven. And when our eyes are fixed upon Jesus and what he has done for us and that's real in our lives, we okay, okay, Lord, I trust you. The sacrifice and the suffering is worth it. And as much as I like comfort, the idea of just living out my life in comfort sounds extremely boring. And I'm spiritually getting lulled to sleep. But the idea of seeing Jesus rescue souls from hell and bringing them into heaven, that gets me excited. The idea that our culture is not Christian, where it stands out to be a believer, that's exciting to me. To see God wake up our nation is exciting to me. I go, yeah, Lord, do it. Do it, Lord, do it. May your will be done. May your kingdom come. And God, would you use us? Would you use us according to your plans and your, pur- and your purpose? Your life has purpose. God loves you. And he wants to just take that love that he's poured inside of you and pour it out to others. And we say, okay, Lord. Yeah, with the persecution comes the witness. We want to be used by you. So let's stand together and let's pray that in.
So Jesus, we do wrestle with these things. We, we wrestle with our comfort and Lord, we get scared and we get nervous and we get fearful. Lord, would you wake us up? Would you wake us up to your love and your love for people? And we don't know what the days will behold in the, in the future, but we do understand that there's a lot of believers that are going through a lot of persecution. We ask that you would fill them with your spirit, that the depth of your love and your comfort and your peace and that they could be a tremendous light in the midst of the persecution. We know time is short, and we just ask that people throughout the world would come to know you. Lord, would you take our lives, we surrender our lives afresh to you, and we do desire to be a witness through the power of your spirit. Even as we go into the rest of today, we want to be a witness of you, Jesus. God, would you be merciful to our country? We love our country. We're so thankful for it and the sacrifices that have been made. Would you cause us once again to see our need for you? We pray for our community, for those that don't know Jesus, that their eyes and their ears would be open to you and that you would call people by name and you'd be revealing yourself to them. Lord, we pray for young people and We pray for teenagers and college students and elementary age kids. And God, we ask that you would intervene in their life. We pray for these 500 kids that are coming to VBS this week. We thank you for that. And Lord, would your spirit move in their lives? Would you just be calling kids unto yourself? Lord, we pray that our Christian life, our life with you would just be so rich and deep and exciting as we press into your character and the things that you have for our lives. Would you protect us from the lies of the enemy that you can't use our lives? Because of our past, because of our current struggles, Lord, may we see that you're a great God and you delight to use weak and foolish vessels. So we say yes to you. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done. We love you. 